want to improve your business acumen, want to have your goals clearly defined, then you should know about Jim Rohn. Subscribe to his podcast at Jim Rohn Archive as it's time to get serious with your business. One thing do I teach, O my disciples, suffering and deliverance from suffering. It was in this way that Gautama the Buddha, living in the 6th century BC, gave the gist of his whole teaching. And it's for this reason that many commentators and critics of Buddhism have called it a way of escape because of its tremendous concern with the problem of human pain as the fundamental problem of life and the means of deliverance from pain. But I believe this is really a very mistaken criticism because there is nothing that is so much the very essence of suffering as the fear of suffering itself. And if the doctrine of the Buddha were fundamentally based on an obsession to get rid of suffering, it would be a kind of self-contradictory vicious circle. This is very well illustrated by another of those stories which I tell from time to time, where a student came to his master with the question, it is terribly hot and how shall we escape the heat? In other words, this was a symbolic question asking about the whole problem of the heat of suffering. It is terribly hot, and how shall we escape the heat? And he answered, go right down to the bottom of the furnace. But in the furnace, said the student, how do we escape the scorching fire? And the master's final word was, no further pains will harass me. Now you might say then, that the attitude of the Buddhist philosophy to suffering is not at all one of turning away from it, of solving the problem of suffering by turning one's back on it and escaping it. Rather, its whole attitude is that the solution to the problem of human pain, whether it be physical or whether it be moral, is to go right into it. Now, in the Buddha's doctrine, pain or suffering in its most general sense is designated by this word dukkha, in Sanskrit. Dukkha is the opposite of Sukha. And uh, if you break the word down, du here means what is disagreeable, painful, bitter, and ka means condition. Su means what is sweet. So you might say this is bitterness in contrast with sweetness. And the first proposition of the Buddha's teaching, what is called the first of the Four Noble Truths, is the idea that life as we live it is fundamentally dukkha, fundamentally a kind of chronic frustration. And man's effort is always to get rid of this and go to that. But the idea of the Buddha was that if you have this you, you must have this because these two contrast with each other. 
You don't experience this unless you experience this. You don't experience this unless you experience this. So if you go after sweetness, you cannot experience sweetness unless there is always as its background the contrast of bitterness. And therefore, the objective of the Buddha's doctrine was not to get rid of pain and put pleasure in its place, but to go to something else which stands as it were, transcending these two opposites, above and beyond them, which in Sanskrit is called ananda. That word is usually translated bliss, but in a rather unusual sense. There is a poem, again from the tradition of Chinese Zen, which says, under the sword lifted high, there is hell making you tremble, but go straight ahead, and there is the land of bliss. And so bliss here has a very special meaning. It isn't bliss in contrast to agony. And I think probably the best way of translating the word ananda is to use the English word ecstasy. Now, then our problem is simply this. How is it that through a profound going into suffering, that is to say a profound acceptance of it, there can come out of it some sort of bliss. This is the problem we have to understand. Now, first of all, by way of illustration, I would like you to consider a mild but nevertheless chronic form of suffering which we constantly undergo, the experience of fear. What is fear? What, in other words, when you are afraid, are you actually feeling? A great deal of the doctrine of primitive Buddhism, as we have it recorded from the Buddha's own teachings, is concerned with close attentiveness to one's inner feelings and states of mind. A careful watching of them to find out what they really are. And supposing then you're afraid, what happens to you? Many people when asked this question seem strangely unaware. Their thoughts are concentrated on the particular imagination of the feared event happening. In other words, a person is afraid of having a certain sickness, disease, and he keeps thinking of what it might be like to have that disease. But supposing we switch our attention from that and concentrate for a moment on what it simply feels like to be afraid. We find, don't we, that we get a kind of creepy feeling up the spine. We get a sort of sinking or hollow feeling in the pit of the stomach and a clammy sensation in the palms of our hands. Now, as a matter of fact, that's not really very painful, is it? That's, that's all that's the matter with you, and that's the worst that life can do to you at that moment. Furthermore, notice something else. That when you have what you call fear, you have also precisely the same sensations that you have in a totally opposite situation. When you have what we call shudders or thrills of delight, they are the same shudders, the same trembles, sometimes even the same creepy feeling up the spine, the same sinking feeling in the pit of the stomach, that a very profound positive emotional experience can excite. So that we find that our feelings depend for their valuation as to whether they be positive or negative, very much as to the context in which they occur. For example, say a father is playing with his boy 
and uh, he gives him a slap on the behind. The boy looks around, and if he sees an angry expression on his father's face, he feels hurt. It was painful. But if he sees his father is laughing at him and was just teasing him, it doesn't hurt him at all. And so it is with all our sensations. The way they impress us, positively or negatively, as good or bad, depends to a very large extent on the context in which they are set. Take, for example, in a poem like this by the humorous poet Thomas Hood. The poem says, They went and told the sexton, and the sexton told the bell. Now, it's the same sound told in either case, but its meaning is completely different because of the context in which it occurs. If the second line had said, And the sexton told the minister, then it would have had the same meaning in both lines. And just as words change their meaning in accordance with their context, so the meaning of what we experience alters contextually. And so it is this then that close awareness of our feelings reveals. In the same way, we can say we weep when we are sad, but we also weep for joy. There are tears of joy and tears of sorrow. Exactly the same tears, exactly the same physical sensation, but what a difference the context makes. And therefore, the idea of the Buddha was to become delivered from suffering, not by running away from it, but from looking at the actual concrete reality of what we feel and forgetting the context. Now, of course, this is obviously something quite possible in the milder forms of suffering. But what happens when suffering becomes really acute? Perhaps as an illustration of this, I might turn to a very extraordinary work of art. It is a sculpture of St. Teresa by Bernini. Look at that face and try and decide what feeling that face is expressing. Is it agony? Is it a rapture of delight which would, as we say, cause one almost to swoon. What is it? Actually, if you look back and see the whole scene, you will see that the saint is confronted by an angel who is piercing her with a dart, the dart representing the divine love. And so the figure represents St. Teresa in ecstasy, in profound joy, profound delight at the state, the inner feeling of her union with the Godhead. And this is exactly what is meant by ananda, ecstasy, for pleasure and pain in their most intense forms, both producing that we could call ecstasy. A very striking illustration of this has been given recently. Some of you may have heard of the work of a British obstetrician by the name of Grantley Dick Reed, who has many students among obstetricians in this country. For as you know, uh, the pains of childbirth can be some of the severest pains that a human being can undergo. And the point of Dr. Reed's work has been to show that if you change a woman's attitude to the experience of childbirth, if, in other words, you stop calling these feelings pains and instead you call them tensions, and if 
Before childbirth, you train her to relax, to let go of herself, and as it were, cooperate with the tensions that she's experiencing. The whole character of childbirth can be changed. And many women who have undergone this pre-birth uh, training say afterwards that what they might have expected to be an extremely unpleasant experience turned out to be a profoundly moving experience, even a joyous one. Now, of course, it's pretty clear that we can do something like that when the context of a painful experience is very positive, as it is with childbirth. After all, this is a creative event. But wouldn't it be a very different matter in the case of the pains of death? Would it be possible, for example, to look upon the pains of death as natural tensions and so have an entirely different attitude? I don't know why not. After all, we fear death, we have a negative attitude to death, largely because of social conditioning. It's what we've been taught. For example, just to give another illustration and then get back to the subject of death. The idea of being sick, I mean vomiting, is something which most of us regard as disgusting. But is it actually disgusting? Don't we revolt with the feeling of disgust from it? Because when we were little children and we were sick and we threw up, our mothers went, Ugh! and we caught from them the emotional attitude toward that kind of experience so that it reverberates and echoes with us ever afterwards. Well, it's rather the same with death. Because death is, after all, beneficent. If we never died, not only would our world become hopelessly overpopulated, not only might we become utterly bored with century after century after century of experience without intermission, we might crave death after the first 500 years of life. And never to be able to have it would be like the torture of a chronic and fantastic insomnia. So, if death is fundamentally merciful, if it is natural, if it is something that is just as much an integral part of being a human being as having a head or having hands, then would it not be possible to have a changed attitude to death in any community or society so that in due course people could begin to look upon the pain attending death in the same way as they can be taught to look upon the pain attending birth.